welcome to episode 10 of Talking Throws Podcast, Texas Style. This episode is being sponsored by Incredipon in Arlington, Texas. If you're looking for jewelry, firearms, electronics, handheld tools, contact Allen at 817-275-2629. They're located on 929 West Division Street in Arlington, Texas. Also, CrossFit Kilgore. If you're looking to increase your range of motion, lose weight, get stronger, supplement your sports training, or compete at a high level, go to CrossFit Kilgore. CrossFit Kilgore is located at 300 Harris Street in Kilgore, Texas. You can call or text 903-522-2329. You can follow them on Instagram at CF Kilgore or on Facebook at CrossFit Kilgore. CrossFit Kilgore is the East Texas premier CrossFit box. And finally, the Thorn Factory Track Club, where they take something from nothing and make it into something. We franchised out. We have an East at the Thorn Factory, led by Coach Richmond, and we have a North at the Thorn Factory, led by Coach Fleming. Uh, you can follow both of the, all both of those clubs on their Twitter and Instagram pages. Just Google or search them, and they'll pop up. So I, I know you got you got Jason Tunts and nine and you know probably ninety four and he won nationals in ninety seven. Did it really click with your philosophy and what you were trying to do then, or was it when Janice got there, or even with Terry Steer? Did you know? Did it really click? When did it click? I had a, a few national championships at Stanford. They weren't the biggest, strongest, fastest kids, and okay. um, I had uh, a collegiate two a collegiate record holder and a Pac-10 record holder in a high jump as well at the time that I coached from whatever levels they were to being the best ever. I, when I came to SMU, a lot of those athletes graduated and came trained with me. So there was oh, a core group okay. there that really believed in me. Mm-hmm. And so the new group would see that, okay, we have Olympians here training with Coach Wolman, so he must know something. And, oh, my gosh, there's a collegiate record holder, you know, that sort of thing. The, the trust was fairly easy to develop. They're all smart kids. And so mm-hmm. I think the, the best thing I ever did was, was treat them like they were smart. You know, a lot of coaches get angry when the when athlete says, why? Why do, why, do, why do I have to do this? To me, that means I got them hooked. If they ask me why, I got them hooked. Mm-hmm. All I have to do is tell them why. Explain to them. And if they don't understand the science, I gave them books to read. I gave them homework projects. I, you know, whatever it took. You have to understand it because the, here's how the brain works. Here's how the mm-hmm. body works. The body responds to the brain. If you don't believe in what you're doing, if you don't know for a shadow of a doubt that what you're doing is the right thing to do, you're not going to make your body do it. You're not going to have the, the, the work ethic to overcome the challenges to get it done. So you have to first understand it. So all these kids who came in, I'd make them understand the science of it. And why I was doing what I was doing. Every time I introduce a new drill, I explain why I'm doing the drill, what I'm trying to accomplish. And here's what I'm telling you you're going to do. And here's, here's what I want to know. What do you feel? Because you're way better than I ever did it. You're, I have none of the feelings. And I put them through a, a test that was really simple, but it was powerful. And I still do it with 12-year-olds. I make them reach their hands out to their side like a drunk test. And I say, now touch your finger to your nose. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. so they do it. And I said, did you do it? And they're sitting there with their finger on their nose, right? And I said, mm-hmm. and they go, yeah, I did it. And I said, no, you didn't. He goes, well, coach, I, I did. I, 
I said, no, I don't think you did it. And they said, well, yes, I did it. And they'd go like punch your nose like that. And I said, well, then how you tell me how you know you did it? He goes, well, I can see it. I said, really? You can see your finger touching your nose. Well, you got some interesting eyeballs there. He goes, <laughs> you can feel it. You can feel it. Exactly. And as soon as they said, feel it, then I explained to them, well, this is how it works. Your brain here is what I'm trying to teach you. If you understand the language, then your brain gives a message to your body to do yeah. it. Body then returns that message saying, I can feel it. And they said, that's the way we're going to create the best technique in the country. Right like that. We're going to take it wow. one feeling at a time, one movement at a time. I'm going to tell you what I want you to do. I'm going to tell you why I want you to do it. And you're going to tell me if you feel it. And let me tell you, these feelings you're going to get from it are going to be the best feelings you've ever had, ever throwing implement. And so that got them very excited, but it also made them own their future. They had to own some it. independence, independence, but more importantly, they were responsible for their own mm -hmm. improvement. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my job. It wasn't my job to make them better. It was their friggin' job. They didn't understand that. Then, then they weren't going to succeed in life because if you're waiting around for people to elevate you, <laughs> nobody's going to do that. Yeah. 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 External motivation in, in the negative side, it's just never going to achieve anything in life. And so that was all part of the pro uh, part of the package, what I wanted them to learn. So yeah, that's how it became a very powerful way to teach. So you going through that and you know, you're very successful and you won the national championship. I just, did you become, I don't want to say satisfied. Did, there was no patting yourself on the back. Cause you know, from like, 2002 to 2004, you won three national championships in the discus, you know, and that's, and then you had, you know, Janice won 2002 in the shot put and the discus as well. What an accomplishment. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Um, the names that you put there, uh, they were so talented, you know, I, it would have been hard pressed for them not to win going a lot of places. They were so gifted. Uh, were they really? Yeah, they were really really talented but they had to buy into what you were selling they had to of, buy of into the philosophy of course. of course so uh the answer to the question is the environment that you brought them into what well, did as much to do anything so the expectation when you came to smu was to win a national championship that was the expectation and i just showed them how to do it what they had to mm -hmm. do and and then made them take ownership of it and if there's anything that was that environment that elevated all of them and they pushed each other. And, and then, then it became tradition. Like, look, when I had Jason Tunks and Alex Tamert, I thought I already re got, I was so young to reach my peak in my career. You know, you're like, this what, is what easy. Am, what, what, what am I going to do next? <laughs> Go to South and, Africa. That's what you did. That's right. I did. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, and that's the next kid came in and and still one of my favorite stories is show how stupid I am that that really is my favorite story because I it tells coaches uh, whenever I get to a clinic I I tell them how dumb I really was because it, you, you really have to never stop learning so I have Giannis on my team and I had Alex uh who who was ended up being the bronze medalist he didn't win an NC toy title because Jason came in and Move, move past him yeah yeah and he only, he only had three years of eligibility because he came in as a college transfer from estonia 
his senior year when he should have won, Jason passed him and took it, took it away from him. He went past Jason and ended up being the Olympic medalist. You know, Jason wanted to be. So they always had this thing going on between the two of them, right? And uh, so that was, a, that was a great environment that got moving. And then Giannis came in and good Lord, you know, he really was the best of the world. He was the world junior record holder in the shot put. But unfortunately, he had thrown a small diameter shot and he had so damaged his wrist when he came in, he, he couldn't even hold the shot put. That was an opportunity for me, though. Being the best of the world, he was doing some good stuff in that rotational shot, right? He was already doing some pretty good stuff. But because he couldn't throw for six or seven months, it, it allowed me to break him down, to, to explain to him why it was going far, to explain to why his technique was work, working, why, what, what he was doing in the ring that caused it to go so darn far, and how we were going to then add things to it to make it even more impressive and more uh, efficient. That really gave me an opportunity. But the dumbest, the dumbest part, really, beginning to the, that, that story was he came to me and he says, look, I have a kid from South Africa who really wants to come over too. And he goes, his name's Hannes Hapley. And I, I said, tell me about him. And he goes, well, he's not very big. Uh, and I'm already like cocky and I want 6'6 six, six, and I want long. And, I, <laughs> you know, I want, I want what science tells me I should have. The, the and, longest ratio from their knee to their hip. <laughs> I want it. And I was, get, I was getting back then anybody I wanted all over the yeah. world. So what would I do with a 5'10 kid? So I watched video. You know, I, I called him on the phone. He had just won the World Junior Championships. He was the World Junior Champion at 5'10", 215 pounds. Wow. And he had, he had thrown the 1.6, I think, uh, 196 or something like that. And uh, one point, it was, what was it back then? 1.75, 1.75. I just couldn't see him throwing the college disc that far. I just couldn't see it. And I said, look, you want, would you be interested in learning the hammer? Because he's a good athlete, powerful, mm -hmm. explosive. And he said, no, coach, he goes, I don't think so. He goes, but I, I'm going to wait because I only had one scholarship. And then I decided to put it somewhere else. Only one left for the throws. And so I said, look, maybe if I'm, I have money next year. So he turned down all his other offers to wait a year to have an opportunity to come to SMU. And so mm -hmm. I turned down what eventually became the collegiate record holder and still today, the collegiate record holder. I made him mm -hmm. sit home for 12 months <laughs> because he wasn't tall. You know what I mean? He didn't have long arms. He yeah. didn't have anything. You, I had no mm -hmm. idea how he's throwing that far. And so here's the best part of the story. And it's the absolute God's honest truth. He came in, I, he came back. I said, yeah, you still want to come? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, I'll take you. And this is first day of training, the very first day of training. He got out, warmed up, took some full throws. And I looked at him and I said, son, I apologize. I said, you are going to be the collegiate record holder. You are going to be the best discus thrower I've ever coached. And that was with all these people I had thrown before, but I knew it. There was something happening on the finish that I had no idea why it was happening. And I was gonna figure it out and figure out how to take advantage of it. But I knew I had never seen the left foot come down and the discus disappear into the, into the sky that quickly. Never wow. seen it. He laughed at me. He says, oh, that's great coach. You know, he didn't have a you know, clue that it was really gonna come true. But I found out later 
uh, accidentally in the weight room because Libor was uh, the hammer thrower is now there on the team as well. And Libor was dying. Uh, I don't know if you've seen these ab machine, ab rollers that you, you put your hands out and you extend out over your head uh-huh. yeah. and then you push up. Right. And it's, it, mm-hmm. it's one of the hardest things to do with your ab. And most people do it from the knees. Libor was trying to do one full Libra's on a whole nother story. He was weak everywhere. He had no strength whatsoever, but I told him his core was the key to everything. He was very motivated and passionate. So he wanted to do one full length of these things. Right. And so he finally got one. He was just strutting around the weight room, really happy himself. And Hannes walks in and says, what happened? He goes, I did this. Hannes goes, let me try. And he sits down there and does 12 without stopping. <laughs> my jaw's wow. on the floor and i said i think i just figured out what he, what he has i went up and grabbed him and this is the truth that his ribs were three inches thick every one of them and they were packed on top of each other so he had like the old car spring sitting in his rib cage and so all the tendons were packed in there all the ligaments all the torque you know torque and all I had to do was figure out how to get that spring back a little farther. Yeah. What, what kind of return would I get from that investment? Oh, you, and, you got a good investment. <laughs> yeah. So from that point on, I tried to create a technique that would work for him. That's when I, I put what he does together, the, the pelvic tilt under, the, the real vertical uh, movement, and really starting way on the left side, really not giving a rip how much movement around the left I got, just to make sure it was so that we, so that we could sprint the crazy sprint, put that left foot down, catch that discus and slam it. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you because I'm, get, I'm yeah. getting excited. So that's <laughs> kind of your today's philosophy actually started where you, you shift your center of mass onto that left side axis and you just worried about getting around it. You didn't care about the right leg sweep or anything like that. That's where that's that right. started. That's it. Really? Yeah, started with Hannes, and then it went to Mikey because uh, with his own with his own uniqueness, um, mm-hmm. Mikey was six six. I went back there, yeah, and Paul Robertson. I created something similar, but uh-huh. uh, Mikey had a little other things going for him that was that were unique to him. Allowed that to be successful. Now, having said that, going I'm going back to I'm just learning again, right? Mm-hmm. I, I've got age group kids that don't have cores like I do. Core is developed late, as you know. You know that your midsection is is the slowest to develop, and it happens with maturity. You can't rush it. Mm-hmm. And, I'm still uh, working on my core, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Unfortunately, it's not going the right direction. Right. You know <laughs> anyway, uh, when the young kids now, I, I realize they don't have the core development. So I, uh-huh. I had to be, uh, I've moved off of that having to start on the left. Not when I not when I initially teach them for the first six to eight months because being on the left is key to everything and so mm-hmm. one, I'm wanting to create that motor pattern where they feel what it feels like to be on the left rather than falling across the left. Then I allow a little bit of shift with the axis so that we can create enough momentum to get around the left. But that and brings so, with it other issues. But you know, and let's talk technique. So then from there, you're you're sprinting chest up to the center axis. Is that kind yes, of what your thoughts absolutely. are? Yes. And I want that discus to catch on to that rotating axis to move out and to be at full extension and responding to the right foot touching down in the middle. 
mm-hmm. so that it, it is slinging around that body early and long. Keeping it behind the hip. Now, you know, and this is stuff that's changed over the years. You know, people used to say they kind of be tight with that tight left arm, almost like a ballerina. But now you see people, you know, with that extended left arm and there was a big stretch between their, you know, their left arm and right arm for a high orbit. Is that what you teach or is that, do you think that's kind of changed over the years? Yeah, I see some of that uh, nowadays, uh-huh. not with the real slingers. Uh, people that are really, mm-hmm. really strong look for the block at the front. And if they like to lengthen that to create the, the, the stopping power on the left side, so the right side goes. I'm not a, a proponent of that. I, I like the discus to sling around the middle, which doesn't even require the left side. So mm-hmm. I like the left side to come in and uh, not make it about, mount the left left arm block at all mm-hmm. so so no i'm not about that at all i understand why people do it but it's not anything i teach because i what about I getting this, that left foot down and uh it's got to get down in sync with the discs that's the best way to answer it is wherever that disc is around that pole if it's linked to it you want to catch it and continue moving i i often tell kids like i used to um before they took it away, I had this, uh, you, you maybe are young enough, uh, old enough to do this, but they, they used to put a, a tether pole, tether ball, mm-hmm. a tether ball, tether yeah. It, it, yeah, tether ball in a, in a tire with cement and mm-hmm. you could roll it around, and move it. Right. So I put a tether ball up and I used to tell them like moving the discus, moving the hammer, moving anything over time was like trying to, continue to move the tether ball as it accelerates you're not going to feel the force but you're going to apply the force and it's going to get easier and easier over time as as the thing accelerates uh you're helping a a a rock move down the hill so to speak a boulder move down the hill you're you're not going to feel the initial inertia that you feel when you first start Mm -hmm. and you certainly don't want to feel it on the finish you don't want to feel the big pull in your chest and shoulder because that means that you've slowed it down and You've got it weighing two kilos again, or you got it weighing the full, full weight. You don't want them to feel that. You want them to feel the, the lightness of it. I always said that our goal was to throw a 1K and let everybody else throw a 2K. And mm-hmm. here's, how, here's how we're going to do it. Because if, if we can compete with a women's disc while everybody else is throwing a men's disc, I got a feeling we can win. Yeah. And that made them realize then, the second thing is you don't need to be that strong. It's not, it doesn't take much, matter of fact, the more strength you have sometimes with a 1K, the less you can throw it. Core development was a huge aspect of it. So weight room core and trying to push that development the very best you could, we were all in on that. Back when I first started uh, and I studied all strength and conditioning as well, and you, they wanted you to do 100% one rep max and then 95% times three and then 90%. Mm-hmm. And this was all in a workout, right? This was all, okay, and, and, it's, and, and, there, and there's some support scientifically for that. You can increase your single rep strength levels by doing that mm-hmm. significantly. Okay, so what I found was the more I put kids through that, the 48 hours following that, they couldn't feel anything. So it, it would destroy the ner- central nervous system and that, that wonderful communication between feeling and doing was destroyed. So I decided early on, I really wasn't gonna do anything above 80, 85%. And if I did it was just as, as a test to show them that they could, they were getting stronger doing that. I would have six days a week where my technique was felt. What we were trying to do was felt, where everybody else was having three days at mm-hmm. best. 
that they could feel the, the their athletes could feel what they were doing when it came down to it when my athletes went to the national championships they were very competent under stress because their motor patterns were highly developed and more in sync better feeling better response they always performed when it mattered always that is the most important thing this philosophy got them to the most important meet healthy uh, because so many injuries happen in the weight room when you're trying to do too much or trying to do one set more or uh, the, the injuries come back to haunt you there and it also shortens their career uh, they were so confident in their technique that when they stepped in the ring from the moment they moved the discus back they, they knew it was going to be a good throw and that kind of confidence at a high level the national championship stimulated your nervous system right i mean are you kidding it was heightened at a really high level and if you could control, if you could put the same movement together that you did at a non-heightened level, you should get a bigger performance. A lot of them would all PR at the most important time. So that, that was what it was all about. I got, I got two questions for you for what you just said. Number one, what typically Monday through Thursday, what would you, what was your kind of practice regimen, you know, in season? Would you just do discus on Mondays and shot and hammer on Tuesdays? Kind of walk us through what, what that week would be like. Okay, so I, all my athletes had one main event. Yeah, and the, any other, anything else we did was fun. It was meant to be a, a break from the one event. I wanted them to be elite in one event and good in the other event and have fun and have it be a, a training break. We did the main event every day, six days a week. And Sunday, they got, they got rest from it. Always throwing something. We'd throw, yeah. we'd throw anything, you know. Uh, we'd throw pipes. We'd throw cones. We'd throw... Um, just so they weren't looking for the feedback as to how far it went. That was my main key. The way humans process and the way humans learn physical movement is one piece at a time. So many coaches coach that completely differently. So they'll say, look, I've broken your throw down and I want you to work on the left shoulder staying level coming out of the back. And then they throw and they say, yeah, but your right foot didn't turn. So where's the learning going on there? The, the, the athlete is keyed in on their left shoulder, looking for the feeling to get back to them to, de to determine, yes, I did it. No, I didn't. And the coach is giving them feedback on their right foot. So there, there's no le learning in that. So what coaches have to do is they need to prioritize. It's a series of dominoes. Well, which, what's the first domino? What's the most important thing that they learn? And teach them that first. And make sure that happens every single time without any question. How do you do that? You only judge it on that. So all I want you to do right now is make sure that your axis stays vertical. I don't care what happens to your arms, the discus, the move, the shot put, the hammer. I want your axis to be vertical if that is appropriate. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then at the end of the throw, I said, your, your axis stay vertical. It's a battle for them to say, yeah, but. And I'd say, no, no, not a yeah, but. If it stayed vertical, you accomplished the objective. You should be happy about it. Reinforce positives. Positives then produce all these wonderful chemicals in the brain that then open up the nervous system, which you learn more. So all these things, all these things you do as a coach, whether they know it or not, it works to either enhance learning or take away from learning. I always wanted to talk to football coaches because I played it my whole life, right? And I said, why, when you're teaching skill, do you scream at an athlete? Because the, here's the way the brain works. Screaming at an athlete turns on the part of the brain that's fight or flight. That is motor patterns. You're, you're telling them to, re, to produce what they already do. The part of your brain that actually functions to break things apart and move individually 
feel things gets shut down in a flight or fight situation. I found it, it can shut down for the rest of the day. When you're teaching technical skill, environment matters. How you talk to them matters. What your expectations matters. Uh, giving them positive feedback matters. And then setting the task and being clear about the task matters. All these things matter if you want somebody to learn something. Then you have to decide as a coach, what is the sequence that you want them to learn? Well, you can't do anything if you're lost of balance. So that's where my first, I started with balance. Whatever it was about controlling your feet always being under your center of mass, whatever it was, it was all about balance. And then if you add an implement, how did that affect balance and so on and so forth. Mastered balance and they, they could walk across the ring and not fall. You know, then it became about relationships between the upper and lower body. And then after they established relationships, then it's sequence of movements and then it's rhythm. And you teach it in that order one piece at a time. The athlete buys into you, you get to the end. No matter how good an athlete, no matter how good kinesthetically they are, if you follow that pattern and you don't move on until they got it, they get to the end. Do you feel that the coaches nowadays in 2020 and the latter half of the, this, you know, this decade have gotten away from that where they're becoming more screamer and yellers and, and not teaching the brain how to work so the body will work? Are we seeing less results in, in poor technique come across our thors that we see kids looking up to? I can't judge that. I really can't because I've been out of uh, high-level coaching for quite some yeah. time. I watch um, the best in the world. I, I'm, I get a kick out of the fact that everybody's axis is now vertical. I get a mm -hmm. real kick out of that, uh, that everybody else has figured that out. Try to convert something that's better at right angles than trying to catch a moment as you're going through angles for the ground to transfer up, right? Nobody's setting the discus up and they're not trying to drop under it as much as they used to. They're recognizing mm -hmm. that you attack the disc linear. You don't, you don't try to put like Mac used to throw it up. You get under it. And High you point try it. To, Mac could do anything he wanted to. He was a beast, right? Flexible. So <laughs> yeah, he was a beast. I mean, he could do anything he wanted to and the thing would go far and he found a way for him to work. And, uh, the guy I really thought brought the technique along worldwide is Harding. He, his ability to transfer ground energy straight up through the body out to the discus, keeping his feet on the ground was masterful. I mean, it's just masterful. I mean, there's been great throwers. Look at, look at the guy. Stall. Uh, yeah. And now he's getting it, by the way. He's, his yeah. shoulder isn't dropping as much as it used to. He's moving the discus away earlier and he's getting bigger distance. So that's working for him uh, really well too. And how they got there and how they found it, another coach found it, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think the U.S. is, is I want to kind of say maybe the little brother when it comes to technology to compared to maybe what the Europeans are doing? Because, you know, you had success recruiting those kids earlier just because of the system they grew up in versus our high school system and going through our college ranks. What I think uh, it has to do with our system has to do with the fact that college, high school, whatever, you only have so many years with each kid mm -hmm. and your job is to produce. And what's the quickest way to produce? Well, get them in the weight room, get them strong. The other, the other thing is they, you want them to do all three events. If they're talented, you want them to do all three events because they can score conference points. And so no, I wouldn't, I would say it's situational, not knowledge. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of, I think there are more good coaches out there in the U.S. now than there ever have been. I think that that has a lot to do with the internet and information and more 
uh, it's more out there. Nobody and has to do DHL's packaging. <laughs> that day's over, and the uh, budgets are a lot bigger, too. Yes. And staff. Hey, guys, this is Janelle breaking in for a quick shout out to our sponsor, Big Frog. You can find Big Frog of Colleyville at 817-571-3764 for your t-shirt prints and more. You can also reach him at Colleyville at BigFrog.com. Back to our show. Is there, is there something, you know, because we, we, we do this podcast for our young listeners and maybe some, some coaches who are trying to educate themselves. Is there something that you would say to kind of both audiences to guide them to become better coaches, but also better throwers um, with, you know, with your history experience and knowledge? Be a teacher first and be a student first. Athletes need to be students. Teacher, the coaches need to be teachers and they need to, they need to approach athletic skill the same way they approach learning anything except the fact that you don't know anything and somebody out there does and he wants to teach it to you. And then yeah. the other side of it is make sure you teach. Don't boss. Don't, don't wind them up like a robot and put them in there and say, do this, do this, do this. If you don't understand why, then get that answer before you start trying to coach somebody. What, what is your perspective of high school throwing now? It's kind of in the state of Texas. Can maybe when you were recruiting back in 1999 or 2000, as are you seeing better – technical kids throwing further or are you seeing you know kids raw strength just because they spend so much time in the weight room because they play football or whatever throwing further no I think you're seeing better athletes in the ring do you really yeah I do I really do I think um especially in Texas over the last few years I don't know what they've done collegiately because I haven't paid attention I don't know um it seems to me like the one kid that's down at Texas that um, he, he excelled with Zeb. I've watched him work with kids before. He, uh-huh. he seems like a, a teaching type of uh, coach. He's got the right personality, very subdued, and, but then he, he gets excited when he has to. I, I was, I'm in, I've been really impressed by him. And uh-huh. so the kids that go to him elevate. And, yeah. and then I saw a guy that was way better than the Texas kid. Uh, I wish I could remember his name. He went to A&M, I think, at first. And Oh, I think Gabe? Now, oh, yeah. And oh he's at Texas God. Tech now? Oh yes. God. He, yeah. may be, he may be the next world talent. He's got everything. Yeah, I know so Falcon's I, really high on him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he should be. <laughs> <laughs> and I love Cliff. I love Cliff. But, yeah, there's talent out there. Uh, it's all over the place. What would you say to those young kids who are looking to maybe – throw in college and you know might not have the mark that they're looking for or might not be six foot four or six five what what guidance would you give them hard work trumps talent hard working talent trumps all a lot of talent doesn't work very hard mm-hmm. so no matter where you are on the talent scale but because of our country's uh lack of emphasis on work ethic if you get it early on and you take ownership of it, you're going to beat most of your peers, even if they have more talent. Because outworking, smart working, but outworking uh, always trumps less working talent. I really believe it. Awesome. Great, great <laughs> wow, advice. Great advice. Thank true. you for sharing that. I want to know just, and this is just a personal question for me, because I, I want to know who you're going to say. So I'm going to give you two or three questions, and I just want you to kind of rank them. And this is from the day you walked on Stanford or wherever. Could you tell me the four best discus throwers you've ever seen? 
worldwide? Rank the top four. Um, Alecna, number one. Oh, really? Yeah, nobody else even close. Why? Uh, because he felt what he did in the ring, and he could call it up whenever he wanted to. He didn't chase wins. He didn't chase distances. It was never about how far. It was about winning. And um, he won more Olympic games, except for, of course, Al. I value success at the most important time above everything else. Came over three consecutive Olympic years and trained at SMU. He was a good friend of Alex Tamert's. And so they come and they'd be here for about six. Well, Alex was always here, but he'd come over and train with them for about six weeks every Olympic year. I've never seen a guy with that money gifts. He had everything. I mean, I, don't, I forget what his... It's, I think it was 235, two meters 35 was his yeah. length, right? And he was 6'8", and he had feeling, kinesthetics through the roof. He felt everything. He could clean and snatch best power lifters. He kept track of everything he ate, every lift he took, everything he put in his body, everything he did to his body. He was the most consummate professional. He had every gift, and he used every gift. Wow. And I saw him throw over 76 meters over a fence, doing what he does. I mean, he was yeah. just rhythmic, smooth, long, felt the disc and competed well. So I think he was the best ever. And then Al Order, I think was number two. And I think that's just goes because he, he was the Olympic champion mm -hmm. four consecutive times. I didn't like anything about his technique except that it won. Technique has something to do with my ability to assess, but really it's about performance. I, I liked Harding. Okay. Just because his movement matched my, what I believed mm -hmm. it should look like. He took it a step further and kept everything on the ground. And mm -hmm. that, that was interesting to me. Um, and so that added a dimension in my understanding about people who were explosive can stay on the ground longer and maybe produce more force than somebody who hit the ground at a moment and was able to convert that moment into something big. Mm -hmm. But which one was better? Well, I don't know. i been playing a lot lately with non-reverse so um, yeah. I'm still learning that I, I don't know the answer to that mm -hmm. so I like I liked him I I was soft thing for John Powell because he was always a man a few words when I went out to Stanford uh, but very very cool guy a very nice guy very supportive guy he he if anybody knew that I knew nothing he knew it but he never, ever, you know, I knew the science of it, but how to get kids to do it. You know, I, I didn't know it then yet. Yeah. I was still learning at 25, but he never called me out on it. And uh, he took me after that clinic and said, look, don't worry about it. You were right about that leg. <laughs> so yeah, I, I just, I just, I just liked him. And if you know anything about John, he made everything personal. It was all about he versus Mac or he versus Wolfgang or he versus, and he made me realize that you have to find a trigger for every person, every kid you coach. He made yeah. me realize that something motivates that kid and you have to figure it out what it is. And for him, it was just personal, competitive me versus you. And so I, I was always amazed by him in that wow. regard. Now, one of my favorite throwers is Wolfgang Smith. What, what's your opinion of Wolfgang? Uh, amazing. Athlete. Uh, yeah, amazing athlete. And I, I, I liked what he did. Many, many years later, when he did a little clinic, it's, it might even still be on YouTube. I, I got a lot out of that clinic and uh -huh. the, way he, the way he thought about it and the repetition. I don't think anybody ever realized that to get 
your right foot to move one way and your left foot to move a different way, thousands and thousands of repetitions that he may have brought that to the sport. He wasn't, he was naturally gifted, great, great athlete, but he put repetitions to motor patterns. He, he understood uh, that you had to do it a million times in order for it to hold up under pressure. Yeah. And he was a great competitive athlete and, yeah. and not to mention what he survived personally yeah. in his own life. Uh, what's not, that's admirable in every level for every human being. And you wouldn't think that he would just nail that finish, huh? <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. I know. I know. That is max effort of getting, of filling the discus in my opinion and view. He, I just, when I saw that as a young yeah. man, I was just like, wow, I'm going to try to throw like Wolfgang, but I don't know yeah. if I can do it. <laughs> well, you, you couldn't, um, yeah. because his, 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 his anthropometrics were a little different. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very yeah. true. So, so that's the guy side. And I'm just curious, we, we haven't talked much for the women, just, you know, two or three of the, off the top of your head of women that you've seen throw with your experience throwing the discus that you're, you've been pretty impressed with. Oh, Petrovic. Petrovic. Uh, yeah. She's, uh, I, I watch a world championship, watch the China, Chinese girls, watch the, I don't see much that there's to emulate. I don't, I, I think they get in a powerful position on the finish mm -hmm. and, and they crank the live and be goodness out of it. Yeah. yeah. And um, they successfully throw a long way because it's strength versus one, one kilo is easily overcome. Uh, yeah. The girls, the girls have figured out a way to get 90% of strength levels that guys have. It takes them longer. It takes more reps. It takes more years, but they eventually get there. And when they do that little one K is it's, it's an unfair competition between yeah. now, having said that, I think I watched the development of the French girl Michonne, right. And where she was when she first started, cause I saw her at a junior competition and I okay. had a lot of, I had a lot of French athletes and I tried to recruit her. I, I wanted her because physically she was talented, but she was horrible in the ring. And yet long enough that the discus still went far and she competed at high levels, but she never stopped learning. And what she did at the end or what she's doing now, I don't know if she's still throwing, but when she was the silver medalist, I thought that her growth technically was the best in the world. I thought she improved so much over her four or five Olympics, whatever she did. Yeah. That, that she, she had good movement at the wow. end. So what's your feelings of the, the diamond league taking the discus out? That's just sick. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I think throws have a, a group of their own. I think they should just separate from the sport. I really do. Mm -hmm. I think there's no place left for them in the sport and they should cut the cord. And mm -hmm. there, you know what? There are so Honestly, there are so much TV and different places. That, uh, there are so many sports channels. There are so many, and there's not enough content. Start, build your own content. And it's, it's amazing content. Yes, it is. <laughs> and you could, you, you could get a camera in there tight, and you could do all kinds of wonderful promotion and marketing things they do nowadays. And there's a lot of people like you and me, by the way. Mm-hmm. And that they could, they could form an organization that could keep itself going for years uh, if you could leave out the human greed part. Do you think overall, because I'm kind of fond of this because I'm kind of a little old school, is, is overall, is the glide shot put dead? Are we going everything rotational shot put? 
<laughs> well, I think like there's everything evolves and I think yeah. it becomes uh, the athletes that can rotate do mm-hmm. and the ones that can't these days lose. Mm-hmm. So how many people are going to get to do the glide when they know that it's, it's sub-maximal in terms of what you can produce with it? You can't yeah. create the velocity on the shot. Uh, that you can with the rotation for many years the rotation had not figured out how to con- control nervous system in a big competition so that uh-huh. it would reproduce the separation between the hips and the shot under under duress and so the gliders would still win the, the medals but now given everybody's axis being vertical again by the way and nobody's bending over and trying to trying to create a, a shot put lift out of the rotational throw, which they did for years and years and years. But Oldfield's the one who did it. I mean, if mm-hmm. people would just paid attention, he kept vertical and in the end he just leaped. You know, he just went mm-hmm. straight up as much as possible and blocked the rotation, made it linear. And uh, there's nobody that throws like that anymore. But no. the fact that his axis was vertical and, and the shot can sling around that vertical axis. When people figured that out, it could, they could reproduce it under duress. And that's what made it the end of, of, of glide. Yeah, because the gliders were still winning the golds not that long ago. Yeah, so did you, what was your opinion of the, this past Diamond League for men's shot put with Krauser and, and, yeah, um, and Kovacs? Unbelievable. Yeah. Look, Krauser can throw 80 feet. He still doesn't work his axis vertical. He, he just tries to pause in the middle and, and blast it a long way out. Stanford. I, I liked, mm-hmm. his, I liked mm-hmm. his high school technique much more than I like his college technique. Not college, but his professional technique. Yeah, yeah. His, his, I think his high school technique, he had the right idea. Mm-hmm. And he should go back to it and lose 30 pounds and, and move in the ring. Mm-hmm. I really do. Mm-hmm. And I think if he did, nobody would ever touch him ever again. You think he'd mm-hmm. break the world's record? Yeah, it would break it by three feet, four feet. What do you what do you think of Tom Walsh and him moving over, you know, to the the right side of the ring and that kind of wide sweep? What do you think of that? Well, that's Giannis. Go yeah. back and watch go back and watch Giannis. We I okay. put him in the I put him in the middle of the ring with his left foot. We did that a did long you really? time ago. Long time ago. Uh-huh. And the vertical mm-hmm. and the vertical axis. Go back and uh, look on YouTube and look up watches NC Toy. They have one video on there that is NC Toy when yeah. he was skinny and, and watch his movement. You'll see that that is what they're doing now. And that's how a guy could bench 320, throw 72 feet. I just so jotted much. down a lot of notes just about coaching in general because I coach, you know, just a variety of different kids in whatever sport and helping to mentor younger coaches. I just was writing down all these great things you were saying um, just about coaching kids. So I appreciate that, that aspect of it a lot. It's all, yeah. It was awesome. Thank you so much. We yeah, have, lots of great stuff. I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. But honestly, there's a, a, a tremendous, uh, I have a tremendous love for anybody who's passionate about coaching and teaching. So thank you all for doing everything you guys do for young people. Yeah, that's what we have to do. We got to keep in there. The good people have to keep, keep making a difference. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. We wish you great success. Happy health. If you ever need us, over this side of uh, DFW, you're more than you welcome to reach out. Please do. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, okay? All right. All right. God Appreciate bless you, sir. God bless Thank you. you. Take care. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Wow, what a great part two of Dave Woman being on the Talking Throws podcast, Texas style. Dave was at SMU for 28 years. 
During that time, you could say that was a dynasty of dominance. He won national titles with his team for both men and women. Every time his thrower stepped into the ring, they were feared. You heard him talk about ownership from the mental approach, but also developing their technique from being the best in the country. He wanted them to to feel the throw. He wanted them to believe in their selves. He wanted them when they got to the national meets, they were peaking at the right time. You never heard him say to throw at a certain number. You never heard him dictate outcomes. This is why, this is why in my opinion, Dave was named Master Coach by Track and Field Coaches Association. But also something tells me, if you talk to his throwers like Janice, Hannes, Jason, Terry, even Joanne, or Kristoff, they would say Dave Woolman is also a master human being. Dave, thanks for being on the podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.